Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Uh, this is a really fun show. I got contacted recently by a, a guy that I flew with uh, very briefly, uh, one of the days of the Rockies Traverse with Will Gadd. And he said, you got to talk to Max, man. He's done the X-Alps four times and he's a legend around here up in Canada. And he taught the Mueller's how to fly. And so I reached out to Max and we just had a really fun conversation. We talk about safety, risk, uh, margin, the X-Alps, of course, because we're both junkies. Um, a lot of really good stuff here. Max has been instructing since the late 80s. Uh, he's been in the game a very long time. I think you're going to get a lot out of this and really enjoy this conversation. I've also still got this giveaway going for these great little GoPro knee pad mounts uh, that we got gifted to us from Ben French down in New Zealand. So uh, if you want to share the show or tell your friends or put uh, give us a rating or put it up on the social media, just let me know what how you've done that. And uh, you could be in to win uh, one of these great mounts. I'll be deciding that at the end of August. And that's about it. Enjoy this great talk with Max Van Der Max, uh, so awesome to have you on the show, man. I was uh, watching your X-Alps exploits from years back and uh, a good friend of yours reached out to me just yesterday, actually, and said, hey, you got to get Max on the show. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on that show there. It's a pleasure to talk to you there and congratulations to your two times X-Alps, to the two times adventures you had in there and also to congratulations to the other ex um, adventures you have done, especially the one in Alaska there. It's very impressive. Thank you. So, yeah, it's no, it's really cool. It's awesome. Uh, just before we started recording there, you were you were telling how you got into this crazy game back in the late 80s. I'd, I'd love to. Uh, could you rehash that story? Yeah, I have been in doing this for quite a while now. I think I started in 86, 87. That's when I got into it. Yeah. And the reason how I got into it was very simple. I mean, I was already quite intrigued with uh, the gliding and the flying before that. As a kid, I already admired the the, the uh, skydiving and, uh, you know, all these type of sports. And then I remember I was maybe just 14, 15. Uh, an uncle of mine actually started hang gliding. And I had my hands first time on a hang glider and was just like around on the practice field with it. And that was it for me, right? Hmm. Um, but it didn't go far because it was at the very beginning of the hang gliding times and a lot. <laughs> A lot of incidents were happening back then, and so my parents didn't let me go further. And um, it took a little while then after, and so that's, as I said, in 86, 87. It was actually one day I hiked up a fairly good mountain, and when I was sitting on top, uh, another guy was sitting up there with a big grin in his face, and we talked about the party down in town. There's a town party happening later tonight. And then um, I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to rush down there to make it to the party. And he said, oh, yeah, see you there in 10. I will be down there in 10. <laughs> <laughs> and literally what he did is he just took one of this first old, they called them a monofly. And it was a skydive shoot, nine cells, just with siliconized material. Pulled that thing off, run off that steep kind of a um, field into a cliff. And it didn't take him 10. It took him five minutes he was down there. <laughs> 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 and... Uh, and I, my jaw just dropped and I go like, oh, my God, this is it. This is really it. If I don't take this on now, now I'm, I, I don't know how old I was, maybe 20 or so. Uh, I will never do it. So I run down like crazy. A couple hours later, I see him down there in the party already half wasted and having a good time. right? <laughs> and I just pulled him aside and said, you got to show me this. I got I, I to gotta be in it. Right. Yeah. And sure enough, the next day we went up into a ski hill. And, uh, and my first flight actually was very interesting. He just said, all you got to do is just run and run as fast as you can. And then if you want to go right, you pull right and left, go left and, and it will land on its own. <laughs> I love it. Oh, oh back yeah. in the day. <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. Well, there was really no school there, right? And nothing yeah, really happened. That's all they there knew how to, that's, that was the, the extent of his knowledge. <laughs> Exactly. And I mean, the only guys who were out there and teaching were virtually hang gliders, hang glider schools. And some of the hang glider instructors, <laughs> they turned into a paragliding instructor by kind of default. Right. right. So there wasn't much knowledge there either. Sure. And so sure enough, I mean, I went there, did my first run off that ski hill between the trees. And I remember just like it would be yesterday, um, the tree came closer and I 
you know, pulled down the one brake line and then I pulled down the other brake line and I was just escalating in a big swing, right? <laughs> and uh, eventually I made it out there, flew down straight. And then the funny thing was this, that's how I learned my first lesson really about light ratio. Um, <laughs> because I was looking down there, I saw that barbed wire fence and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to land before that barbed wire fence. Oh, no, 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 I'm going to land after that barbed wire fence. <laughs> Oh, no, no, bang, boom, ding, I was right in it, right? Oh, oh man. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, landed in the barbed wire fence, cut up my hands, and, uh, oh, yeah, that was my first experience. Oh, it's cool, and, hard um, <laughs> Oh, yeah, then took right away the wing, packed it up, and run right back up again, and, uh, and did it again right away, right? So that's how hooked I was there, and, and it didn't take long. I think it was about five, six months later, I quit my daytime job, just quit it because I got connected with another school and and started teaching from that point. Yeah, I taught a lot of people back then right there at the Tegelberg in, in the Allgäu. And then I also did a lot of test flying for a lot of different manufacturers and parts of it for the associations to rate the equipment. And uh, well, and then actually in the 90s, 91, this is when I came to Canada for a holiday. And um, and I liked it so much out here that I got stuck here and 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 yeah I'm here since then. And you, what you, means stuck? So you just you <laughs> came out for a trip and you stayed. I came out for a trip here and uh, I, actually this is where I met the Mullers and then um, after this I came here to the valley valley itself where I'm still living here in in Invermere, and but we were flying back then more in Golden, and yeah I liked it so much that I. One thing came from, for, you know, one thing went to another and I'm still here. Wow. And um, it took me almost, it took me almost 10 years to go back to the Alps the first time. Really? That's how, that's how much I liked it here. Oh yeah. No, I was here flying around all over the place and um, did a lot of, what I really liked here is, I mean, what I really liked, let's put it this way, is it's so laid back and it's so really what you see um, what what you fantasize as a European in Europe, you always see like the wild, the backcountry, the you know nobody there. I mean, you you understand it way more. Like the Alaska trip, what you have done is literally untouched, right? Mm. And um, I mean, here it's very civilized here in the valley. But as soon as you go a step behind the valley, you you, you are in you know no no man's land, right? Yeah. For a long time, and just exploring this kind of places. And just also flying into these places, like doing out returns into the back ranges and coming back out again, uh, it's a it's a different ball game, and it's just as a it's a, it's a different flair to it, which I which I really like. It's it's amazing, right? That versus that range in Europe, is so spectacular. And the only time I ever flew it was coming south with Will Gad, you know, on our Rockies Traverse trip, and we had the most spectacular flight from from uh, Swansea, right? That's the launch above. Yep. Uh, above Invermere and just those mountains, they're in golden. That whole that whole segment down to the border is just wild. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. And then we even go into the mountains into the west side, so across the valley in there as well, right? So the whole area is just uh, it's 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 stunning and beautiful. And um, I mean, to some extent, when you go back then to Europe and fly in Europe, for me it was kind of hard to wrap my head around that you can fly behind another mountain range and there will be civilization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's no such thing really as remote in terms of what we think of it. Is that I mean, you you there's no such thing as is flying through a coal and being in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. there's another bus stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, another bus stop. You go here or go there or even you know from the XAPS perspective, it took me a little bit at the beginning to wrap my head around. Uh, you can land literally anywhere, wherever you want to land, even high alpine, right? Mm -hmm. And there's everywhere is trails. You see a trail and it's even marked and even has numbers on it. And it even will tell you where it goes. Like here, you find somewhere a goat trail or, uh, uh, you know, whatever, nothing. And you follow a creek and bushwhack through with the mosquitoes and whatnot, right? Yeah. Um, and then and the funny thing is, and the nice thing in the Alps is you can be at 3,000 meters or higher and you just literally the maximum is a three, four hour hike. You will end up somewhere on a hut yeah. and uh, they will be open and there will be a nice blonde with a push-up brine. They're serving you off your strudel and schnapps, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, 
<laughs> we were we it's were getting so fancy this time that I was actually flying with Gaia Maps on my phone. So if, you know, if these were kind of flights where we knew they were just going to be a quick flight between a cell or something, and and I would I would pull up, you know, instead of using you know your typical flight instruments, I was using Gaia, and so I could land literally right on the trail that I knew was going to take me to the next launch. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's absolutely phenomenal. You just you can go anywhere, and even if you end up somewhere in the mountains. You will find somewhere a shelter where you virtually can sleep in, right? Yeah. And and most of them you get food. All you need to have is uh, euros in your pocket. That's all the gear you really need <laughs> right. to, to pay for the food and the accommodation. Versus here, if you end up in the backcountry here, oh man, this is a day's walk out or two days sometimes, right? Yeah. And it's a totally then you bear country, and there's the bears, cougars out there, and more so the mosquitoes to stay overnight there, right? <laughs> persistent. Yes, yeah, they don't give up these guys, right? But I always say, you know, the good thing is they come with the price. You don't have to pay extra for them, right? Yeah. So that's a good thing. <laughs> well, that's a very good attitude. Uh, so so 86, 87, 88, your were was your first craft uh, a paraglider or a hang glider? Because I, I noted you you also did quite a bit of hang gliding, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, my real craft flying first properly was a paraglider. Okay. And then uh, in the late 80s, I also started hang gliding. And it was a pretty cool thing, like Tegelberg. I literally had my hang glider stored on top. And then based on the conditions, I just switched between hang gliding and paragliding. Hmm. And then, the, so Canada grabs your eye and you're you're bewitched, as, as many people are. That's a perfect part of the world to fly. How did... How did it all start happening with, with teaching? Like, take me through maybe like the Mueller's, the legend. So, so I started up um, coming to Calgary and got connected with the Mueller's, and especially with Willie back then. And, uh, and yeah, that's a funny story to it. I mean, back then, it was all about hang gliding. And hang gliding, you know, has an advantage on any flying site, which is a windy flying site. And, and um, by Cochrane, Calgary, it's it's a rich, uh, a grass rich, and it's kind of windy as well. And so they just looked back then at paragliding like, oh, yeah, well, it's uh, kind of a popular sport out there. But, uh, well, you maybe have to jump on the bandwagon visit or not, and we'll see, right? Hmm. And I remember the, the first couple of days, so he watched me fly and going back and forth. And he was kind of impressed with the ground handling and what I had in this case. But then one day he came up, I mean, it wasn't the first couple of days. He said, well, Max, see, this is the weather where we still fly our hang gliders and it will be fun and you can do anything. And I just looked at it and go like, <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit stiff. That's true. But uh, <laughs> I know we can't do it. Right. Then he said, if you really, I don't know what kind of bet he did. He wanted to bet on it. And I said, sure, no problem. And so I had to virtually go back and took my wing and, and um, unpacked it, hooked everything in. And I had to scrunch it all up in a nice little tulip and had to walk to the ridge all scrunched up because that's how windy it was. I can remember it was at least 30, 40 K winds. And um, I stood a little bit into the hill. And all I did is I just opened the center cell and threw the wing into the air. And it made a big bang and boof when I was flying. And then after I landed, after half an hour later, he said, oh, okay, so now you got my interest. Ah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's great so not that's, not wow that scared the hell out of me no that looks pretty good yeah yeah that's what he got like wow so, um, yeah, now I, I i'm more interested in it and um and then the, so i i started actually he got me more involved and you know my english wasn't really that good back then at all and then he said, oh, you should come and you start, uh, you know, your instructor, senior instructor in Germany and blah, blah, blah. You should start giving us lessons. And so he started me with uh, hooking up a, a course for his uh, for his paraglider people who came there and wanted to learn more. And then at the same time, his son, Chris, was hanging around with me all the time. And I think back then he was only 14 years old or so. And, um, and I mean, that kid... Uh, he was just a talent, right? So mm. he watched, and then he always tried to read the Hanglider magazine, the German ones, and he he always tried me to that I translated it for him because he loved the pictures and everything like that. And then it, man, it didn't take a year or whatever after this. Uh, Chris got on this paraglider, and in no time, I mean, I think you did. You know Chris Miller on the end? I didn't. No, you know they were before oh, my time. 
Yeah. And uh, I mean, he was such a humble guy, but such such an uh, amazing, uh, beautiful to watch pilot and yeah. ground handling anything. And it was just superior. Right. The sad part is both of them, they're not alive anymore. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, I briefly, mean, they left the just for, for those in the audience who don't know, give a real brief on, on what happened with with both the Mueller's. Uh, what both happened to them is uh, really actually got um, uh, more into the paragliding on the end of the day. And um, he flew on the end wings, which were yeah pretty high end. And he really liked it because they were getting closer and closer, what he called to hang gliding. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Shilan, he was on a competition. And um, at takeoff, had a major collapse and uh, spiraled into a rock and literally died. Hmm. Um, so that that was the end of it. He died actually paragliding, not hang gliding. Um, with Chris, he was in one of the competitions in Florida with a hang glider, and um, and he died there by landing. You know, they used to do this uh, money kind of crab landing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know. Yep. So when they come in fast and hot with the ground effect and fly from one uh, street pillow to another and and grab the money bags. And uh, he came in and, uh, well, it was a little bit too low on one end and uh, came in with the, with the down tube and too fast. And that was the end of it there, right? Mm. It was pretty sad. Max, with, you know, part of what we, I love talking about on the, on the show is, is safety and risk and that kind of thing. You know, you've, you've been in the game a long time. We're kind of switching major gears here quickly, but just because of talking about Chris and Willie, the... You know, how, how has your own approach to risk and safety changed over the years? You know, because the you know, four times you competed in the X-Alps, the X-Alps can be pretty dicey. Yeah, it's a very interesting point that, the, you know, I have to say, luckily what happened to me in, in the very beginning of my career, when we started doing the tests, we were too lazy to drive two hours to a lake and do all the testing over water. We did it actually right at Tegelberg, right there on the, on the high mountain. and. Uh, and, you know, just 20 minutes or 10 minutes away from our house. And so I used to, just like any other young buck on the end, get too cocky on the end and put more things into the program than you should do. So, you know, normally you have a safety buffer of, let's say, four or 500 feet, and then it goes down to three, 200, 150 feet. <laughs> <laughs> and one time it just didn't work out as well as I wanted, and I nailed the ground really hard. <clears throat> I mean, hard. Mm. So hard that my whole body was so bruised up that actually I stiffened up two days later and I couldn't even move. It was like paralyzed, right? Mm. And uh, and that really scared the hell out of me. And um, it took me about a year, I would say at least, to get mentally over it, how much in pain I was. And, uh, and uh, you know, I got really shaken up by this. So from that moment on, I built always a buffer zone around myself, a safety zone. And I said, okay... This is what for me is full tilt. I can go. That's the fastest, the most risk part I can go for. So let's take about 20% off or two notches off from this. And that's how far I go. I don't go to full tilt. I only go two thirds or, you know, I'll give it 20% buffer zone into it. If something goes wrong, I have that buffer zone, right? And that's what I have done since day one, uh, since that day. Mm. And that really, I would say, kept me alive. Um, the only issue where lots of people see like, oh, yeah, well, that's not true. If I see you flying, uh, it's already way beyond my full tilt, right? <laughs> yeah, it has to be it has to be person specific. <laughs> yes, and that comes with experience to some extent. Uh, um, you know, I have been flying a lot also in areas at the beginning, like in the Death Valley and Owens Valley. And here in the foothills, too, where we recorded over 20 meters per second climbing rates. Right? Jesus. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, and uh, we flew those once and we had fun with it, right? So, so my, my, so I could, I could handle these things. I could fly with it and I could go in and out. And, you know, the training, what I'm doing a lot, especially for the X-Alps is um, we do have very strong thermals here in the Columbia Valley, as you know. Um, mm -hmm. But what I tried, what I did is when it was really strong, I always flew, uh, my training is flying against the wind, into the wind. And, um, and, and what makes it so tricky and so hard is um, you have to approach the thermals. If you approach them right from behind in the lead side of the thermal, right, we're talking 10, 15 meter per second thermals, 
uh, you would get washed down right to the ground. Mm. So you really have to feel that to fly around and poke into the thermal from the side. And that's how I go north as far as I can until I'm exhausted, more or less. And then I go south and just, you know, go with the wind and that's just a piece of cake, right? What was the and, what was the impetus to to learn how to do that? Because I, th- I think typically people just well, there's some wind. I'm going to go with the wind, fly downwind. Um, obviously, in the X Alps, we fight against the wind the whole way. So, were you were you already kind of planning? Oh, maybe I'll do the X Alps someday, or was this just something you figured out would be smart to learn? I just figured out it's smart to learn, and it's okay. actually more challenging. And it was uh, instead of just passing around there and sitting in the air and just go, 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 and then finding a. For me, it was like finding a, a retrieval always or a hitchhike back. It was almost a bit too much for me. Hmm. So flying from here, I always wanted to go as far ahead into the wind and come home with the wind and be at home, because we have so many other activities here, like with the lake right here, and uh, the whole area. It's such an, an active area. Uh, that I didn't want to miss out on many on the other things. So that's why I always planned go first north and then come back with the wind, land right beside the beer fridge, and uh, life is good, right? <laughs> <laughs> Max, I'm going to take you back to the the accident you had when you pounded really hard. Uh, one of the questions we get a lot over and over and over again, because you know it, this it's flying and and people do make mistakes and they and they hopefully they have what you had and they and they don't get killed or or something, but they they have a bad accident and they're they're more shaken up sometimes mentally than physically. And they, they find it quite hard to come back. If you got, you said it took you about a year. What was your, if you had other accidents and then if you have, how, how have you come back mentally? So the, the number one part is it really, yes, that, that incident I had was for me a huge wake up call and knock on wood. I did not have any, any other accidents since, mm. right? I had maybe some <clears throat> closer calls, but uh, nothing I got really heard of. And you are absolutely right. Paragliding itself, and I see this in paragliding and in ultralight flying. I do quite a bit of ultralight flying myself and, uh, and also teach it. What we see is people who don't have the proper education want to get into the flying too fast. And our problem is flying a paraglide is super simple. I mean, all you really do is you just sit in there. Um, you know, if the wing gets pushed to the left, <laughs> you pendle on the knees and keep on flying straight. So that's the easiest aircraft ever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then people all of a sudden realize, well, the wing is pretty easy to fly, but to read the conditions, we will be at the borderline of safety, like in a split second when the winds just get too strong and too early, right? Mm-hmm. Versus flying a glider plane, if there is a crosswind of uh, or gusty winds to 60, 70 K, that's not even bothering us, right? Hmm. I mean, by the way, I fly glider planes as well. <laughs> Jeez, fly everything. I fly pretty much. Uh, the only thing I don't really fly is rotary and brooms. That's the only <laughs> thing I don't. You've got to take up brooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, brooms. I mean, if Harry Potter comes by, I tell you, I will take one right away because they're so easy to park, right? I mean, you don't have to pack and put them in a corner. <laughs> I mean, that right? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> So, so anyhow, but you see with paragliding, you get exposed into this, uh, uh, let's call it the red zone very fast. And then people get scared. Mm. And the scare, I would say most dropouts we have is because people get surprised and scared and will not get back into the saddle again. Right. Mm. And, uh, and this is something it's really, and that's what I do with my lessons all the time. I say, the faster you get into it, the bigger chances is that you actually not getting hurt, that you will get scared. And then the scare will be the part why you will quit. So this this is this fine line that I find really tricky. So that what you just said comes up again and again and again. You, you the 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 pilots who tend to, you know, let's call it make the, a name for themselves, or they get really good at World Cups, or they can compete in the X Alps, that kind of thing. They all say the same thing. Like, well, what would you have done differently if you reround the clock? They all say, well, I would go slower. I'd be more patient. I'd be more safe. I'd have a bigger margin. I was too aggressive. But how do you get good and do that? You know what I mean? You see what I'm saying? Like to 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 really improve, I think what all these pilots are saying is that they got good fast because they they took risk and they were aggressive, and yet 
they kind of they either got lucky or you know they they skimped through that kind of intermediate syndrome maybe with like a one accident like you had uh where they were able to walk away but you know for but how do you how do you really improve and also maintain that margin well the number one thing i think is what needs to be taught right from the beginning and that's what my lessons always come up with i'm not showing you how to well i show you how to fly but what you really learn here is to know when not to go that's yeah. my big saying mm. to know when not to go because if you know when not to go then you really know when to go and you will be an amazing xc pilot because if you know when not to go, you know the areas where to go, right? Mm -hmm. And all of this will come with experience. And I say, say to every student, you know, you can do a fast course in five, let's say in 10 days, right? To get them through here, they have minimum 25 flights, which is in my eyes way too, too, too little, right? Yeah. Um, I think everybody should go at least through one season to see the different conditions of the season going through different wind directions, Shinoko, no Shinoko winds. And, and once you have more experience under your belt, you create, uh, get more respect. And that's the key thing is you don't want to create fear. You want to have a really good, healthy respect of what you're doing. And if you have respect, to the nature, the way that you say, I don't fight you. That's number one thing is if you fight, you will lose anyways, because eventually the mother nature is stronger than you. It will show. <laughs> and uh, the fighting itself, and that's what I like so much about paragliding is, and is it's not about fighting. It's not about how big your balls are. Eventually, I mean, at the beginning it is, but eventually or on the end it isn't, because if you learn how the wing works, how the wing reacts, and you become one with the wing, then the next step is you got to become one with the environment. And when you know how the weather and everything works and have that healthy respect for each other, then uh, you get way more rewarded than just pushing on the end. And that's what I try to bring across. There's uh, one of the guys I talked to, and uh, probably you know from your XOPS campaigns, um, Tom Dorlado was on the show, and his yes. his saying for that was, "If there's doubt, there is no doubt." And I loved that. Yes. It, it's very helpful, you know, when you're standing on launch, you, you you have to be able to assess your own skills. And I think when you're learning, when you're coming up through those stages, you don't really know what you don't know. And so if there's doubt, there is no doubt, you know, and there's, there's just, there's nev never anything wrong with walking down. hundred percent. And, uh, you know, and that's the bottom line. It really is. It, and it's a nice part about paragliding too, is you stay, have to stay focused in what you are doing. When you're on launch site, you don't worry about landing. You look at the, you know, overall you have your flight plan in place and you have the weather in place, but you focus on the, on the takeoff. And then after takeoff, you focus to the next, to the next. So, you always got to be present. And they, and exactly as Tom says, I say it a little bit different. I say it, um, you can't be a little bit pregnant. <laughs> Either you are pregnant or you're not. <laughs> I like it. So there's no gray zone in between. A um, little bit pregnancy is only guys have it when they have a big belly, I call it, right? <laughs> 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 but other than that, and that's how flying should be. If you actually inflate a wing, I don't try to inflate a wing. I do inflate a wing, period, right? Mm. And then when the wing is all good, then I make my decision if I take off or not. But I don't try or I want to go. So the doubt kind of thing or maybe in between the wishy-washy stuff, that has to be cut out, right? And yeah, 100%, that, that, that will make a big impact on anyone's flying career. I noticed on your website, Max, you do guided tours and you do SIV. Um, tell me about SIV because that has changed radically since you started in the sport in the late 80s uh, when that didn't even exist. Um, so what what are your recommendations for your your students that are maybe they're they're beyond that 25? They've, they're, they've got their beginner's license and you're trying to get them safely into that kind of 50, 100 hour zone. Yeah. So for me, SIV is something um, which I, I right away say from the beginning is because most people think SIV means acro flying, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, SIV is not acro. Acro is acro and SIV is virtually really learn what, how to react and what's going on if there is big collapses happening to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. So my SIV courses, they go up to a full stall. Because you normally don't even need to fly a full stall because a full stall is just a reset button if something goes wrong with your acro, right? And um, 
And so that's how I believe in, in the SIV is more um, doing more, get, getting more feel for the wing and exp explore the um, um, how far you actually can push a wing, right? Mm -hmm. One of the, I, I work a lot and very close actually, I'm going to go there in a month uh, with uh, Jürgen Kraus in Annecy and he's in, he's doing the SIVs all year long. That's all he does in Annecy. And uh, they have a really cool program, and I, I, I really like what they're doing is, like we do a lot of flying just with rolling, getting the rolls hmm. um, with, without the brake lines and then with brake lines and then doing the collapses and, uh, and the front stalls and all these type of things to a point where you go, okay, if it's really rough air, rough air out there, I know how to stabilize my wing. And more so the goal for me is this a really good pilot on the end you know, even in rough conditions, you shouldn't see collapses because before a wing collapses, you can already act before and and keep the wing open, so, you know, to stabilize everything. That's what I see more in my SIVs, what I want to bring across instead of just doing the acro. Um, again, acro is a flying on its a style on its own. And um, I'm not an acro pilot. I mean, it's pretty cool to do so, but I have to say, if I would have to do a loop, my pants would be full. <laughs> no, sorry, I'm I'm not into this anymore. I don't know. It's maybe age, but um, and I understand the acro pilots that call cross country pilots or cross country flying more like pirouetting in the air, mm. which I yeah, which I understand too. But that's the beauty about paragliding. I have to say is. You know, paragliding can be acro flying, it can be cross country flying, and it can also just be a nice, beautiful hike up and do a nice glide down and finish the day or begin the day like that. Mm. You know, mm. so I always say you don't have to be a, a XOPS pilot or a super acro pilot in order to be recognized as a pilot, sure. just to be in the air and enjoy that. That's I say that uh, what really comes down to is to measure how big the grin is in your face afterwards. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Max, when you're in your teaching, are there, are there common mistakes? Are there things that, that make you cringe that a lot of people do? Are there, are there things you're kind of coming back to again and again in terms of um, what, what people really need to work on? And may, maybe give me an answer for that for, for students at, at various levels, maybe the very beginning student and maybe the 50 hour student and maybe the 150 hour student. Well, one of the things I see overall is um, it wasn't so much in Europe, but here it is more people want to get into the sport very fast, fast and cheap. Mm. And so a lot of schools, they want to offer this and go like, okay, I get you in fast. I give you three, four day, just come three, four, five days with me. Uh, and they just about sign them off and then sell the gear and go from there and done, right? Hmm. Uh, that's uh, so that's what I see overall people um, they, they come going after the flying itself like flying off a practice hill five times and then being signed off and flying the mountains it doesn't really do it no. again my slogan is to know when not to go right and to be a safe pilot and a good pilot like in my instructions man if you want to get to the beginner stage it is at least 18 20 hours in classroom sessions you know, micrometeorology, as an example, to understand what, what the weather is doing and how things work from the aerodynamics perspective, the safety aspects. It's all classroom time, right? Mm. So uh, a lot of classroom time to the more knowledge you have, the better you will be out there and will not run into the surprises, right? Mm. That's one part. And the second part is, is what I see that people simply just want to get their licenses or their ratings too fast. Oh, after five flights, 10 flights, hey, I know what I'm doing. I want to get signed off and I want to go on my own, right? And to what I really think is and what I encourage you a lot is, number one is uh, do as many as possible supervised flights. Number one, you have to really do them. Mm -hmm. Even if you get in some schools, they say, oh, we sign you off, you're good enough. And then the other thing is this, what I try to uh, create always is within the community, fly within the community itself. So... Uh, you know, phone each other up with people who fly a year, two years, three years, five years and fly together and evaluate the weather and the conditions together and go from there. Right. So stick together more like that. Mm. Um, that's that's how I see 
you can create uh, longer lasting pilots. Mm. What about just techniques in general? Do you have any, uh, you have any advice that you give your students about, uh, you know, as they're, they're progressing and they're starting to fly Swansea in the middle of the day and, and uh, trying to figure out kind of piecing together their first cross country flights. What are you working on with them then? Yeah, what I do is with them uh, at the beginning, and what I um, believe a lot in it is number one is ground handling is one of the most important things. And even when they want to get more into the cross-country flying, I say, the more you ground handle, the more you understand and feel your wing and can stabilize your wing in the air, especially then in rougher conditions, right? Mm. I mean, we used to know when we used to work as a test pilot, we just inflated the wing on the ground. And I would say to 90%, we can tell already what the, if that wing will even fly, right? And we almost can write a test program already on the ground with ground handling. That's how much you feedback you or you can learn, you know, just with ground handling alone, right? Mm. Then the next thing really is what we do is um, when they take off, um, what I'd like to do a lot is um, uh, clip the, the brake lines back onto the risers and literally just, you know, lean out of your harness to the front all the way out and just do this big swimming movements, you know, so that you really offset yourself from the harness and lean all the way out and, and get the feel how the wing flies when you're all the way out there. And then just do the opposite, throw your feet right up into the lines, go upside down, right? <laughs> and fly like that. And then the next thing is what we do is we, we do the rolling movements just with weight shift. And you know, if you do it right, you just about can actually do wing overs uh, with only weight shifting, not even touching the brake lines. But that gives you a lot of feel and feedback, what the wing is doing, how the wing flies. And then when you just put the brake lines on and do little imp little input with the brake lines, in no time you're in a wing over, right? Because you actually, the whole body is flying. And once you get this down and you fly in rough, rougher conditions, you actually understand and feel what the wing is doing. And you can prevent, I would say, at least 70 to 80% of collapses when you fly in and out of a thermal, right? Mm. And at the same time, you also get to feel how the wing reacts in a thermal. And you can stay in a thermal longer because you feel what the wing is doing. Because if you're not one with the wing, how should you understand the thermal? Because, you know, based how your wing reacts, you know where the thermal is and how, how where the core is, right? So that's what I bring more into it is more the feel of the flying. And uh, and then once, I mean, here in this area, it's super easy. Uh, once you're in a thermal, you get whacked up to another thousand meters and then <laughs> it's just a glide to the next, right? Right, right. Good advice. That's great advice. It'd be remiss of me to not ask you some X-Alps questions because we're both big fans, obviously. Uh, maybe looking back at your four campaigns, one, I want to ask, <laughs> I got to ask you about your supporter. You did it with your wife every time. Is that right? Yes. You guys and must have I, a very special relationship. <laughs> well, I have to say very clearly, I would be only half the man without her. That's the number one part, uh, right? Amen. Uh, I mean, we are a team and uh, I mean, she is just amazing. And the beauty about her is she has no ego. And uh, it's all about the fun where we are and how we do things. And uh, and for us, the Exalves, I mean, we knew, we know where we are and who we are. And um, oh, sure, we we have some kind of, a, you know, a skill level there. But competing really with guys like Kriegel on the end, <laughs> give me a break, right? <laughs> uh, but so for us, it is, was always more like an adventure. Mm. And it's really what I liked about it is you got pulled out of your daily life and you could do what you were dreaming of, flying across the Alps. Mm. And somebody telling you, you have to go here and there and you work together. And, uh, and then how focused you are in this case together, I have to say it was amazing, right? And especially doing it with my wife. I mean, that's the only time where she served me breakfast in bed. It's amazing, right? I mean, bed. <laughs> I got to take advantage of these things. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, and, and I think that's why uh, the uh, Ulrich and back then Hannes, they always picked us back up again and again. It's because they could see how much fun we had together and we mm -hmm. worked together. And we always had a good attitude. There was never, uh, you know, a bad word exchange or whatever. It was always a good attitude and fun. And um, I don't know, I, 
I would not do the X-Ups without her. I, I want to do them again and again, but she says, well, I think um, <laughs> it's time to stop. And, uh, and, it uh, is now. You know, I, I, I to- think that's what people don't appreciate about the – I mean, I, I see other teams. I, I think there are teams who take it really seriously that maybe aren't having quite as much fun <laughs> as we are. But, but um, you know, I, I think people – don't appreciate how much fun it is. It, it, I mean, it, it is, you know, there's definitely some suffering involved and it, it is pretty intense, but I, I just, I find the, the intensity also very fun. If you have a great, I, I was surprised how much of it is the team, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's terrific flying across the Alps and being involved and it just takes you to the craziest places, even in the Alps, you just, you launch from the most yeah. absurd spots and, you know, all that's really special, but for me, the most the, the thing that makes me cry at the end is is that our, when our team goes our different ways, you know, you get to you, you don't even go your different ways. You're still together, which is phenomenal. Together, but yes. I just that bond and that the laughter and the the things you do together is really special, isn't it? It's very special. Yeah, it's it's very. You know, the thing is, is I can see. I I liked it the most when we only had one supporter. When mm. we had the second support, it was actually really Penny liked it to some extent more because then she could hike more with me, right? Mm. Um, but then you have another personality built into it, which is hard sometimes to really flow the same way, right? Some mm. people they want to push harder, some of them they want to push you one way or another, or some people don't, right? Mm. 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 So, and that's what I liked with uh, with Penny to do it together. There, we were very synchronized and and did it together from that point. Um, yeah, yeah I have to say, uh, sure, we pushed hard, but um, at the same time, we never blamed anybody. And our our uh, push was always, you know, the X-Ups was more like you as the athlete do the flying and the hiking, and you have the one supporter in there as one team. And so we didn't want to have any other people flying ahead of you and have other guides guiding you in here, there. We saw the all the whole X-Ups always as a huge, big adventure but only for the two of us. Mm. Mm. And that's what I like the most. Yeah. It'd be interesting. You know, I was having dinner with Kriegel the night before uh, the race started this time. And, and I was asking him, you know, because he did it with a new supporter this year with, with Toby and uh, instead of, instead of Thomas. And, and he was, he was saying that in about 20, 13, 2011, uh, you know, he used to do it just with Thomas. It would just be the two of them. And he was saying that they, it just, and it was totally fine. And and Thomas wouldn't be overwhelmed and, and they had a really good synergy and, you know, but he said, it's gotten so fast now that you can't do it with one anymore. It's just, there's just too much. And in, in some ways I, I, I wish it would reverse. You know, there, there are team. I mean, Kriegel still wins, and he doesn't have other people flying with him. You know, but there, there, there are teams that have like four cars now and six people, and you know, like Aaron Duragati usually is in the air with two or three other pilots. You know, a couple X Alps pilots, and Andre Prochaska is like one of the best acro pilots. And and I'm not digging on Aaron. I, that's that's his approach, and, and and it's you know, it's a it's a different way to do it. But in some ways, I feel like it's it'd be fun to to rewind a little bit because i think that must be very special when it's just the two of you yes and i have to say you see at the beginning the first couple of years when i was there it was very strict in the rules it was only you and your supporter mm-hmm. and a lot of other teams they you know they had their pilots flying with them and it, now it turns into two three four five cars whatever you're saying there right and i hated that yeah and i always some people said like well and when i competed i always competed by the pure rule i say that's how it is that's why I like doing it because I like that kind of rule. Mm-hmm. Um, now they open it up a bit more and say you can have more supporters, you can have more like this, and I think that's a good thing because then you make it public and say it's a whole team. Yeah, you have two, three pilots who fly with you. You have these mountain guides hiking with you, you know, and uh, not doing it all by yourself. That turns into a different exiles, right? Yeah. Um, personally, I. See, knowing this, that it's actually evolving more and more into this direction, I don't, I wouldn't go back to the X-Alps. If I would really like to go back into the X-Alps when it was like it was at the very beginning. Mm. Uh, the be- very beginning was even 24-7. There was no night break. Yeah. There was yeah. no night pass. Yeah. It was just open 24 hours. And that was the best. Yeah. Honestly, it's the best of the best. Right. Because this is then really you and your partner or your supporter and then you really have to learn how to pace yourself, right? Yeah. Because right now, uh, people who can't pace themselves, 
if they would be back on a 24-7 race, you would see in the first five days, they would run themselves into the ground. Yeah, they'd right? blow up. Yeah, and, I mean, they're um, still blowing up. Even and the uh, that's what I like. That, yeah. Yeah, they're still blowing themselves up. And I know Toma is an example. It's a, and I like and love Toma. Toma is an amazing guy. He's a really good friend of my kids, actually, because they always were hanging out there with us, right? <laughs> uh, cool. His little kids. Yeah, and, cool. But Toma, but Toma is the... That guy, I know as an example, if you make this again 24-7, he, <laughs> he would only lay down when uh, he's completely shut down, right? Right. And, <laughs> um, and, God, and I think the X-Ops is more... <laughs> oh, yeah. But then if, uh, how he even can pull it off. But still, a, a human being can only do it for so long, right? Sure. And, um, and that's what I like more. It's like when you bring it back all by yourself, um, the 24-7, no other supporters, nothing into it. Um, I have to say that's what I like the best. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. There's the, the, the there's there's a lot of appeal there for the, for that for sure. Um, can you in your four campaigns? This might be an impossible question, but can you relate maybe the your highest moment and your lowest moment of the four races? Uh, my lowest moment. Well, normally I don't really have really low moments because I, I really tend to forget them. <laughs> exactly. And I want to <laughs> type three. And five. I want to forget them as quick as possible. Yeah. And the thing is, I think that sometimes I thought there's a reason for that uh, uh, they do it every second year because you need a year to forget some stuff, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say for me, number one is uh, the lowest moment was my very first year where after eight days I had Achilles issues like inflammations where I literally had to get out of the race on the end. Mm. And so um, that was for me kind of a low moment. But at the same time, it was a very high moment because I was going into the X-Ups kind of blue light. So like, oh, okay, let's give this a try. And then I could actually realize after this time, wow, this is can be actually fun, more fun than I thought. And I'm actually stronger than I thought, mm. right? Mm. Um, that was for the first year. But then the, I mean, another low point would be when I got my penalty, my two-day penalty, uh, the last race I was in, because I felt like it was one of my strongest races there, right? Mm. Um, but one of the highest ones, I have to say, overall, is really sharing this adventure with Penny and to some extent with the kids together. You know, just having this kind of experience and uh, pass this on to your family and do it as with your family. This is, uh, it's, uh, as you know yourself, is once you're in this ex-ops part and you do it more than once or twice, your life becomes, uh, changes kind of around that with your attitude, with how you, um, how you approach sometimes things because you constantly it's the whole exile stuff is a mental game right mm -hmm. and so you you evolve men mentally way more out of it and i say that's a very high point from the flying perspective one of my high points i have to say i think that was at the last race when after the two-day penalty um i was racing for the last place and um and i said no thomas hofpower he was literally just an hour behind me and we were at the Zugspitze. And uh, anyhow, it was such a dicey game, what to do. And I was waiting and waiting on one of these ridges to take off. And I managed to take off and then literally just flew along the grass routes <laughs> to, the, to the front of the Zugspitze. And the turn point was on top of the Zugspitze, right? Not down in Lermos. Yeah. And uh, so what I made is I made it around to where the big rock face is to Erwald. And you could actually land on top there before. It's called the Gattel, and then have about a four four hour hike up there to the summit. But um, I was kind of getting too, you know, I got some thermals and I thought I can make it and fly over the Zugspitze. And the amazing part was I made it to the top of the Zugspitze. And before where I wanted to land in, I was virtually 20 feet too low. It was in that rock face. Mm. And so I had to fly around, and I knew if I go down to Erwald, that's a two two and a half thousand meter hike up. Oof. And I and I knew, okay, I'm done then. I, I'm out of this game, right? And so what I actually did is I flew then around, and I flew underneath the gondola where the gondola goes up, and I landed just right at the beginning where the Via Varata starts to going up to the to the Zugspitze, the last four hundred meters. So I landed in that Via Varata. <laughs> Whoa! And uh, you know. And then just put my wing in and whoop, climbed the last 400 meters up. 
And I still remember the Spanish guy was standing up there and he saw me and he looked at me and he saw he, he sees a ghost coming. Oh, cow. <laughs> because I was right there, right? Wow. And then I said, oh, no, let's give her. It's awesome. It's fun. And I was so pumped, right? And then uh, we, he took off and 10 minutes later, whatever, I took off. And then from there, I mean, I flew, man, I flew all the way down to the next turn point. Yes, I flew to the next turn point. Did the turn point in the air. I flew over all these glaciers at 4,000 meters. And uh, then I flew, landed somewhere else again and flew off. And by the end of the day, I was in Switzerland. And I think I got 10 more ranks up. So Wow. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's yeah. a good day. That was a real good day. So it was like from being last and just landing literally in the Via Varatas, they were just below there. And then uh, going off and doing this kind of flight. That was very spectacular, I have to say, yeah. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. I, I had a day like that uh, in my 2015 campaign where you just kind of go, whoa, what just happened? Yeah, that's that's pretty exciting. Well, fantastic. Max, thanks so much. I think that's a perfect place to end on a very high note, a big, huge flight. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts. And, and uh, it was great talking to you. And I hope you and I get to spend some time at cloud base, but I know you're heading out to a great river trip in the green with your kids. So have an awesome trip and thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And yeah, thanks a lot for having me on your show there. I really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And all the best to yourself as well. Yeah. I'm sure we're going to meet one way or another. I'm sure we will. Thanks, Max. Cheers. Thanks. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that really cool talk with Max. Uh, he's heading out on a great trip and I'm heading out to fly. So we're going to make this quick. As always, all we ask for is a, is a buck a show. Uh, you can support us directly via PayPal on the website, cloudbasedmayhem.com, or you can support us where you can kind of set it and forget it. And there's all kinds of rewards for doing so on patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. Uh, I have promised to all of you, all the supporters, a little special episode with Kriegel Maurer. I uh, recorded some of that at the end of our first conversation, but I've still been, we're, he and I have been trying to link up to do the second bit. Got a lot more good, great questions from you on Facebook. And so I promise that is coming very soon. Uh, he just got done with the World Cup in Decentis and is spending a lot of time with his kids after the X-Alps and we're just trying to make it happen, but we will do so. Uh, keen to bring that to you. But uh, for now, signing off and we'll see you on the next show. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers.